about God's purpose for your soul. This is a series I very much enjoyed caring for about, or excuse me, preparing for. And I hope these truths are helping you learn how Jesus cares for your soul, but how you can nurture your soul as well. We've repeated eight truths in this uh, series about the soul because of their importance. You have a soul. It is uniquely you. It was created by God. It is your most important possession. It will exist forever, either in a place called heaven or a place called hell. Therefore, it is of the utmost value. Last week, we started a look at Samson and how he misspent much of his life. It's a warning to us that we can miss God's purpose for our soul. Today, I want to continue on in this same vein. So let's read two passages of Scripture. First, Judges chapter 14, beginning in verse 5. The Bible says, Then Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother, and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that he tore him as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. And then over in Judges chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. When it was told to the Gazites, saying, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept silent all night, saying, Let us wait until the morning light, then we will kill him. Now Samson lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the city gate on, and the two posts and pulled them up along with the bars. Then he put them on his shoulders and carried them up to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Hebron. After this, it came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and said, Entice him and see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him that we may bind him to afflict him. Then we will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength is and how you may be bound to afflict you, which is a bizarre question. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh cords that have not been dried, then I will become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh cords that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in wait in an inner room, and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the cords as a string of tow snaps when it touches fire, so his strength was not discovered. Now drop down to verse 15. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have deceived me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, a razor has never come on my head for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all that is in his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. Then she began to afflict him, and his strength left him. 
She said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. And they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains. And he was a grinder in the prison. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it was shaved off. In fact, this isn't in the bulletin, but let's, let's read verse 26. Let's read verse 25. It so happened that when they were high in spirits, the Philistines, that they said, call for Samson that he may amuse us. So they called for Samson from the prison and he entertained them. And they made him stand between the pillars. Then Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there, and about 3,000 men and women were on the roof looking on while Samson was amusing them. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me just this time. O God, that I may be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson grasped, grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he braced himself against them, the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all his might so that the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it, so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those he killed in his life. Several years ago, I read an article by a woman who said she struggled to find her life's purpose. She started out wanting to be a solid gold dancer, whatever that is. They ruled that out for me in high school, so. Then she decided to become a gymnast and a gymnastic coach, but she didn't like that, so she switched to becoming a model. That didn't work out, so she did what all unsuccessful models do. She went to medical school to become a general practitioner. She graduated, she couldn't find purpose in that, so she did what else? What else do you do when you're done with being a general practitioner? A salsa dancer. She didn't find any purpose in that, so she became a flamenco dancer, and then she said she finally found her life's purpose. She became a life coach. That's a soul that can't find rest. The soul will never be satisfied until it finds purpose in Jesus. I want to give you a quote from a very famous woman. She spoke these words at the height of her popularity. She said, my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. Even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Those were the words of the famous pop singer Madonna. Genuine purpose is only found in Jesus. So how do we live out God's purpose for our soul? And last week we covered two points. First, refocus on your purpose. And we listed five common aspects of God's purpose for the soul of every believer. Your soul was made to worship. Your soul was made to become more like Jesus. Your soul was made to develop and unselfishly deploy spiritual gifts within the local church. Your soul was made to do ministry, and your soul was made to spread the gospel. The second point we made was to bridle your passions. Samson said of a Philistine woman, get her for me because she looks good to me. Living according to your passions will corrode and corrupt your soul, and it will create all kinds of conflict in your life. Here's the third point. Pay close attention to your soul. 
When you read the four chapters in Judges about Samson, you realize he never attempted to develop the inner man. Chapter 13 tells us Samson would be a Nazarite to God from the womb. The word Nazarite means to be separate. And Numbers chapter 6 gives us the explanation of what was called the Nazarite vow. You couldn't have wine or strong drink. You couldn't have vinegar, grape juice, or grapes. You couldn't have contact with a dead body, and no razor could pass over your head. In other words, you didn't cut your hair. All that was to symbolize separation from the world. Nazarite vows were temporary, but God made Samson a Nazarite for life. He was specially chosen to be separate from the world and consecrated to God in order to deliver Israel from 40 years of bondage to the Philistines. He didn't do it. He abused God's grace. He misused God's gifts. And in verse 4 of chapter 16, instead of delivering his people from the Philistines, he fell in love with a Philistine woman named Delilah. Four times she tried to deceive him. Her goal was to harm him, yet he chose her over God's purpose for his life. And we look at that and say, how could he be so foolish? He was set apart from birth to a holy lifestyle, but so are we. Nathan preached on 1 Peter 2, 9 in this series. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Holy means to be set apart. We're to be holy as God is holy, set apart from the world and consecrated to God. Yet if our soul has been unattended, not being nurtured in God's truth, one day you face a decision and you choose something that goes against everything the Bible teaches. And once you cross that line, it becomes so much easier to justify it and cross the line the next time and the next time and the next time. Nancy Piercy is a brilliant author. I just read a piece yesterday she wrote about Charles Darwin. He began to reject Christianity in the 1830s. He started to reject the Old Testament. Then he began to reject the miracles of God. And by the late 1830s, he wrote that, quote, creationist explanations in science were useless. Yet in an 1863 letter, 33 years later, he admitted, and I'm quoting, Changes of species cannot be directly proved. He wrote the natural selection was, quote, grounded entirely on general considerations. And, and listen to this next quote because he awkwardly worded it. He said, we can prove that no one species has changed. In other words, no species have changed. We can prove that no one species has changed, nor can we prove that the supposed changes are beneficial, which is the groundwork of the theory. And yet he never changed from that. An unattended soul can begin a cycle of consistent compromise and soon you've completely fallen away from the very reason God created you. There's a cumulative nature to building up your soul. It happens through the day-by-day -day drip of prayer in the Word, the week-by-week -week drip of church, serving God from the overflow of your soul, and the moment-by-moment -moment recognition that it's all of God's grace. So if you stay in the bucket, Jesus will build in you a repository of truth and understanding into your soul. He'll build it up like a mighty city. And someday when the Philistines are upon you or your children or grandchildren, you're able to repel the attack.
the consequences of an unattended soul seem small at first. You know, an unread Bible and unattended church and unprayed prayer, they seem to have no effect, no big deal. I mean, why get so uptight about After all, I'm still going to heaven. But if that happens long enough, one day you realize that silent termites have hollowed out your soul. And you discover that not only did you miss most of your purpose, the consequences of an unattended soul can last long after you're gone. Remember that the who we are dictates what we do. So our soul, our inner person, that dictates what we do. And everything we do affects not only the people around us, it affects the people coming behind us. So this is kind of a binary choice. It is impossible to calculate the number of lives you can bless in your lifetime in the name of Jesus and well beyond. The one thing I was going to say about giving is we talked Wednesday night about the women who financially supported Jesus' ministry. We're still blessed by that today. So it's impossible to calculate the number of lives that you can bless, but it's also impossible to calculate the number of lives you can injure if you neglect your soul. I have a quote that will boggle your mind. This person said, if you fail in this area, the biggest price you may pay is your children or those who look to you as an example. And I hate to mention him two weeks out of three, but Robbie Zacharias said that several years ago. God designed you to bless people in the name of Jesus with your words, your walk, your witness, your wisdom, your work. I'm not trying to make W's out of that. It's just that's the way it is. Your life touches more people than you realize. And if you don't believe me, watch It's a Wonderful Life this Christmas. And if you don't know what It's a Wonderful Life is, and some of you don't, we'll lay hands on you and pray for you after this service. It's a movie. Watch it. And it has terrible theology, but still watch it. Remember that the book of Judges and all Old Testament narrative point us to Jesus. Judges describes a cycle of Israel falling into sin and God sending a judge or a deliverer to rescue them from that sin only for Israel to go to a lower low and then God mercifully sending another deliverer. They were an undeserving people who could not save themselves from their enemies. One writer properly noted the book of Judges could be called the book of saviors. You can live like a deliverer when you pay close attention to your soul. You can execute that function in your home, in your church, in your workplace, in any arena. You can grow in wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And others can be pointed to Jesus through the so-called jet stream of your life. You say, well, but what's my purpose? Let's double back. What's my purpose? Remember the five aspects of your soul's purpose. You were made to worship. Your soul was made to become more like Jesus. Your soul was to unselfishly deploy spiritual gifts through the local church. It was to made to do ministry, and your soul was made to share the gospel. Pay close attention to those five areas. And I know some of you get discouraged because you say, well, I'm not really where I'm at. Listen, just plod along daily, just one step after another. Those things take time time separate from the things of the world and dedicated to God. The truth of the matter is, it's all about time. Now, many of you weren't here 
And some of you will remember this. When we brought in a speaker named Ed Hearn a few years ago, several years ago, he was the backup catcher to Gary Carter when the New York Mets won the 1986 World Series. I know him because he has the same disease I have. He just got his fourth transplant. He brought his World Series trophy here with him, and we were preparing before church, and he had the trophy in a duffel bag and asked me to get it out. Well, listen, I was a huge baseball fan in the 80s, the era he played in. I was a Cardinal fan, and the Cardinals and the Mets were probably the rivalry in the 80s. You could buy T-shirts then that gave the Mets the not-so-affectionate nickname Pond Scum. Any, you, you go up to any old Cardinal fan and just say Pond Scum, and they know exactly what you're talking about. So I'm about to see the World Series trophy directly from a member of the Pond Scum. This is going to be cool. That trophy had the pennants of all the teams in the National League, and they were on a small pedestal held up by pillars about two to three times as thick as a bass guitar string and about a third as long. And then they had the Mets pennant on a taller pillar in the middle of the other pennants. It looked like something you'd buy at an interstate gas station. <laughs> it really did. And while baseball's, you know, all, all work is holy unto God, so... It's a good pursuit, but I couldn't help but think at the time, millions of hours are spent on this game, and the victor gets that as a reward? And I know there's monetary rewards, but that's the trophy? The Christian gets the eternal reward that is far greater than any reward in this world, and so much of that will come about the way you've taken time to attend to your soul. So refocus on your purpose, bridle your passions, pay close attention to your soul. We have to deal with this fourth one, folks, guard sexual purity. Samson was sexually immoral. In Judges 14.3, again, he wanted a woman because she looked good to him. In 16.1, he went to a prostitute. And his divinely given power left him because he pursued Delilah, who was off limits for him. In Deuteronomy, God warned the Israelites not to have relationships with foreign women. He said, you shall not intermarry with them. Delilah was a Philistine, the enemy of God's people. Now, in case you're not aware of this, let's be, let's be crystal clear in this day and age. Intermarriage in the Bible has less than nothing to do with ethnicity or race. It has to do with spiritual purity. Deuteronomy 7, 4, God said, Foreign wives will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. King Solomon had more wisdom than any other man, but the way treaties were signed between nations then was to marry the daughter of another nation's king. So one of the first things Solomon did was to marry Pharaoh's daughter. He ended up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. And anybody with 700 wives has some problems. <laughs> and just as God said, they turned his heart toward false gods. Samson ignored this also, and it led to his downfall. Now, the theme of the book of Judges is in the last verse of the book. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. One of the most visible aspects of our anarchy today can be seen in rampant sexual immorality and the collapse of the traditional family. And one of the fountainheads of those problems is pornography. Now, it might get real quiet in here for the next few minutes. If you're involved in pornography... 
And statistically, there are several. I want to say two words to you. Now, I'm not joking. Stop it. Stop it. The Holy Spirit supplies the believer the power to overcome sin. You can stop that sin just like any other sin. You say, well, but I become addicted. And pornography use does create new neural pathways in the brain. But you can still quit. Proverbs 19.29 says, Judgment are prepared for scoffers and blows for the backs of fools. Proverbs 26.3 says, A rod is for the back of fools. Pornography use is foolish. No one's going to dispute that. Proverbs says, Blows and rods are for the backs of fools. So imagine if two strong young men beat you in the back with a wooden rod every time you looked at pornography. And the more you look, the harder they hit you. If you keep on looking, they'll beat you like a rented mule. It wouldn't be long before you said, I'm more addicted to not being hit than I am addicted to pornography. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> it's true. Ultimately, your mind will think about what it's most exposed to. If you're looking at pornography, you're just feeding the beast. You're also desensitizing your conscience. Your conscience is being habituated. It needs more and more to get the same high. What your mind or your soul is constantly exposed to immersed in, dwelt on, thought about. That'll eventually shape who you are. And the consequences here are devastating. There used to be shame in pornography and sexual immorality and sex outside of marriage, but the walls are down. Adrian Rogers said the, slink that, the sin that used to slink down back alleys now struts down Main Street. And the cost of sexual impurity is a cost that no one individual can pay. Your family can't pay it, and the nation can't pay it. For years, Israel had no deliverer, largely because of sexual immorality. Both men and women are involved in pornography. But our nation and our families have lost the protection of men. God created men to lovingly and passionately lead and guide families, to protect them from evil and temptation, to lead them into living for Jesus, to shepherd and to shield children and teens, and to lead our churches in missions and evangelism. And yes, I know there are wives that won't go along. That's a grave sin, and that's a different subject, different day. But when men and women sinfully channel legitimate sexual desires, our passion for our God-given responsibilities and nurturing our soul wanes, our energy and focus is redirected, and our soul becomes obsessed with sex. And today, all around us are the consequences of men and women living with unguarded purity. Samson didn't act like a man in any sense of the word. Remember, the Old Testament characters are written for our instruction, but not necessarily for our imitation. Samson had everything, godly parents, a miraculous birth, and the Spirit of God with great power. He is a warning that the child of God can waste his or her blessings. Samson's listed in the Saints Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11. You'll meet him in heaven, but he's a picture of 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Take heed lest you fall. You can't practice sin and not corrode your soul, and sexual impurity will crash, land you, and everyone around you. Now, perhaps... This morning, you're involved in sexual immorality of some sort. Somewhere along the line, 
every person in this room has been sexually immoral in some way. And I hope no one would say, oh, pastor, I haven't. Don't tell me you haven't lusted. So have I. There's always redemption, forgiveness, and grace for any and every sin. So if you're struggling with this, especially those of you younger than me, which is just about everybody, realize your world today has far more temptations than the world when, when I was your age. I mean, before I was saved, only by God's grace did I miss so many bullets in this area and many others. So here's what I want to say to you. Thank God that he brought you to church away from the world's life-destroying vortex into the door of his grace. Just walk into it. But remember, you have to be on your guard. So if you're sexually immoral, listen, all you have to do is just walk out of that world today and walk into God's grace and forgiveness. He will wipe away the shame, the guilt, forgive your sins, and you'll have a brand new start. Thank you. I hope that's clear to everyone. So refocus on your purpose, bridle your passions, pay close attention to your soul, guard sexual purity. Fifth, humble yourself before God. Psalm 101.5 says, No one has a haughty look and an arrogant heart that I will endure. Humility is necessary to fulfill God's purpose for our soul. Samson displayed no humility. Until you get to his humiliation in prison, everything about his life suggests he was full of pride. Chapter 16, verse 1 says, Samson went to Gaza. Gaza was a Philistine stronghold, the strongest of the five cities in the Philistine Confederacy. Samson's purpose was to deliver Israel from the Philistines. He didn't show up at Gaza to defeat the Philistines. He showed up like a famous athlete at a nightclub. Samson and Gaza would be about as anonymous as Patrick Mahomes standing by me. So keep reading in verse 1. It says he saw a harlot there and went into her. He became one flesh with the enemy of God's people. Sexual immorality is like poking God in the eye with a dull stick. I have to say this because it's so rampant among people who name Christ. Cohabiting together before marriage is like poking God in the eye with a dull stick. It violates his commandments and basically says, God, what are you going to do about it? And if you're doing that, what is it about your life that you expect him to bless? And if there's no repentance, you'll deal with the sad consequences and it's unbroken pride that entraps us. Verse 2, when it was told to the Gazites, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city. But verse 3, by his power, he was able to walk out of it. He's so prideful, he thinks he's invincible. It was just the grace of his God-given strength that rescued him, but his pride was unbroken. And he continues on this path, not delivering Israel from the Philistines, but instead falling in love with Delilah, the fatal and final trap. And there is a lesson here. Satan doesn't care how long it takes to get you. He just wants to get you. All it takes is a little bit of presumption and pride. He wants you to think, I can get away with this. I can just let my guard down just a little bit. And that's when we're ready to fall. Verse 5, the lords of the Philistines 
came up to her and said to her, notice these words, entice him and see where his great strength lies that we may overpower him and that we may bind him to afflict him. Then we will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. That was an enormous sum. The price of a slave then was 30 pieces of silver, but now the picture becomes clear. Delilah is a Judas. She will betray God's deliverer into the hands of his enemies for 1,100 pieces of silver. That sounds familiar. Entice him so we may overpower him, so we may afflict him. That's what pride sets us up for. Humility will rescue us from that because humility causes us to recognize that every moment we're dependent upon God and every moment we need to surrender to him, seek him for his protection and direction. But Samson's pride continues. He thinks he's invincible, so he just toys with her. Three times, verses 9, 12, and 14, he lies about the source of his strength. But all this is, is God giving him chance after chance after chance. But the day comes when unbroken pride will destroy us. He revealed the source of his strength, which was his hair. The Philistines cut it while he slept. Look at verse 20. She said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. And then one of the saddest statements in the Bible, he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. And he became slave to the Philistines and God was robbed of glory. You can live in a completely different way. You can fulfill God's purpose for your soul. And realize as you read these verses that Samson, in all his sin, points us to the one who rescues us from our sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. The similarities are remarkable. Samson and Jesus were miraculously born. Both mothers were visited by an angel who told them they would be with child. Both mothers believed those angelic pronouncements. Samson's father needed an angelic encounter to believe. Joseph needed an angelic encounter to understand. Samson and Judas were both consecrated to God. Samson with an Nazarite vow. Jesus was the son of God sent to save us from our sin. Both led spirit-empowered lives. The spirit of the Lord came upon Samson and he did mighty deeds. He did it by the power of the spirit. In Luke chapter 4 that I read while I was praying, that marks the start of Jesus' ministry. And from that point forward, through the power of the Spirit, he performed many miracles, signs, and wonders. Both were betrayed. Samson by a woman, Jesus by a man, and in a broader sense, the whole country of Israel. Both were living sacrifices. We read Judges 16 where Samson sacrificed himself as the wrath of God fell on the Philistines. But Jesus sacrificed himself for us to keep the wrath of God from falling on us. God chose Samson to deliver Israel from their enemy. God chose Jesus to deliver not just Israel, but you and I from our greatest enemies, which are sin and death. And Samson demonstrates how badly we all need God's grace. We like to think we're the biblical heroes. You're David and Goliath, I'm David. <laughs> we're, not, we're not the biblical heroes, folks. And you might say, you know, we're really like Samson in this story. The truth is we're not. We're like the Philistines in this story, the enemies of God. It's only God's grace that rescued us from that. But like Samson, we lose focus on our purpose. Our passions get the best of us. We can neglect our soul. 
No one is sexually pure, including me, and we all battle pride. Jesus came to rescue us from all that. He did what we cannot do. He lived a perfect life. And by his death and resurrection, he will exchange your sin for his righteousness. That's a pretty good trade. So again, we have a binary choice here. You can follow self or you can follow Jesus. If you follow self, you'll be defeated by, excuse me, you'll be enslaved by sinful enemies and eventually defeated. But if you follow Jesus, you'll be attacked, but you won't be enslaved and you'll fulfill God's purpose for your soul. And if you've never been saved, then right now, trust in Jesus. You say, how can I be saved? Believe, just believe right now that he died on the cross, he was buried and he rose again, that you want to get rid of your sin and you want to come to him. If you want to put away your sin, if you want to trust in Jesus, if you sense God drawing you to Jesus, just simply repent and believe. You don't try to get all the sins out of your life and then come you say, Lord Jesus, here I am with all my sin. Take it away, please. And the Bible says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The devil wants to keep reminding you of your sin putting shame into your life before you, or, remind, or just telling you that you're fine as you are, Jesus will forgive your sin and love you without condition. So today, if you've never been saved, we want to encourage you to believe. And then myself or Pastor Nathan would be glad to help you through the process. Pastor Kirk's in Texas with his mother. You can also talk to someone around you, fill out a card. This could be the most important moment of all of eternity for you. If the Lord is calling you to himself, don't let this pass. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great grace. When, I go th when we go through the life of Samson, it's just amazing how even at the end, even though he made so many mistakes, even at the end, you helped him fulfill his purpose by defeating the enemies of God's people. So you have defeated our enemies, and I pray for every one of us that we would step into that grace and recognize that you did for us what we cannot do. And for each one of us, cause us to refocus on our purpose, to bridle our passions, to guard sexual purity, to humble ourselves before you. And I pray for anyone who's never been saved that right now you would make that change in their heart. I thank you for the way you are so gracious to us. I thank you for these precious people in these chairs. Bless every one of them in the way that only you can. And I pray it in Christ's name.